Well, it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce our guest preacher this morning. He has become a dear friend of mine the last few years, and he's a like-minded pastor in the Knox County area. He serves with me on the Knox County Church Network. He is our vice chairman, so I'm anxious in the next year to pass the baton to him, and he'll become the chairman next year. Um, But uh, we're working on a lot of great initiatives like foster care and adoption, and we're looking at starting uh, Christian learning centers at the public schools around the community. And uh, as many of you know about our uh, Renew Clinic that we helped start a couple years ago, um, First Baptist Powell has been instrumental in these efforts. And Perry Garrett uh, is the senior pastor, and he's preaching here this morning. And uh, I'm thankful because Perry took a Sunday off from the pulpit in his church to be here with us. That's a big deal. But uh, Perry has been a part of First Baptist uh, Church in Powell since 2020. I can't imagine starting at COVID, but you did, and you got through it by God's grace. And uh, Perry has a history in the PCA, uh, was, was in the PCA for many, many years in Texas, and uh, was called to, to be a Reformed Baptist at, uh, at uh, First Baptist Powell. He's married to Tana, and they have three children, Madeline, Titus, and Micah. So Christ's covenant, let's give Perry Garrett a warm welcome. Well, good morning to you all. Uh, Just a little bit about serving in the Knox County Church Network. You know, it occurred to me as your pastor was just sharing um, that I have the privilege of serving as the vice chair, which of course means you're set up for the next year to serve as the chair. You need to know this. You have a tremendous pastor that doesn't mind uh, dropping something on you at the last minute. I actually was voted in as vice chair. Uh, let, me, let me restate that. I was told there would be a vote on me as vice chair immediately before the meeting, not giving me opportunity to decline. So he's good at what he does. Uh, you all doubtless know this, um, but you know, uh, you have a tremendous senior pastor. Uh, Seth is a dear friend of mine, as, as he mentioned a moment ago. Uh, We are like-minded brothers and theologians in Christ Jesus. Uh, You may not know this about him. He he is a pastor to pastors. I've I've observed this in Knox County Church Network, but I've also had the privilege of benefiting from his pastoral leadership, his generosity, his hospitality. And uh, so you you are privileged and doubtless he's privileged to pastor you all. Um, If you would, take your Bibles and open them up to the Gospel of Luke. That's where we're going to be this morning. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10. And in a few moments, we'll read together this passage. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. This will doubtless be a familiar text to many of you, perhaps not all of you, but many of you. And I I do want to extend a sincere thank you to you all as you're turning there and getting situated in the text of scripture. Thank you to you all for having me, for hosting me this Lord's Day morning. After all, um, it's quite a privilege to be a Baptist pastor and theologian and be invited into a PCA church. What a demonstration of grace it is in your life. And I hope it is of course in mine as well. I have tremendous affections for this stream in the body of Christ. I I owe so very much to the Presbyterian tradition. And so uh, thank you from, uh, with my sincerity, thank you very, very much. So this is Outreach Sunday, as you all know. And uh, what I'd like to do is spend time talking about 
a necessary attribute of our outreach efforts. And it just so happens that that necessary attribute is the attribute of God with which we began the service this Lord's Day morning. That attribute is the attribute of mercy. Mercy. And if you're taking notes this morning, uh, if you're not, no shaming, no shaming at all. But if you're taking notes this morning, here's the definition of mercy that I would like to operate within uh, as I use the term throughout the service. I understand mercy to be a compassion motivated activity for good among the undeserving. Mercy is a compassion motivated activity for good among the undeserving. And to unpack the topic of mercy together this morning, what we're going to do, as I've mentioned a moment ago, is unpack, walk through Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, a text that is commonly referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you're taking notes, we're gonna do this in two segments, okay? And we will spend, just as a bit of a warning, we'll spend the majority of our time in the first segment. And so if we're getting close to the conclusion of what you're used to in a sermon, don't be worried if we're still in point one. All right, just a little warning. But here, here are the two segments. First of all, we're going to identif- excuse me, identify and unpack the motivation for mercy. And we'll see that throughout the text, but we'll really bring all of this together after we exposit the text we're going to look at in just a moment. So first, the motivation for mercy. And then secondly, we will conclude our time together this Lord's Day morning with four applications of mercy. Okay, that's our outline, the motivation of mercy and then four applications for mercy. Let's read God's word together, beginning in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke wrote these words as he was carried along by the spirit of God. You can follow along with me as I read. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, that is Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will Live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved 
to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's begin our exposition by looking together at our text. Remember, while considering this first segment, the motivation for mercy, this entire exchange between Jesus and a lawyer who is, of course, an expert in the law of God, revolves around two questions posed by the lawyer to Jesus. And I would submit to you that there is a relationship between these two questions. That to answer one of them, we must answer both of them. And we're gonna see that here in just a few moments. The first occurs in verse 25. What shall I do, the lawyer asks, to inherit eternal life? And the second in verse 29, who is my neighbor? Now, notice Jesus' answer to the first question in verse 26. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, remember, this man would have been an expert in the law. He spent countless hours, days, weeks, months, even years studying the minutiae of the law of God. This this was a kind of lob to this man. Everyone listening in on this conversation would have expected the man to knock this out of the park. How do you read the law? What is written in the law? And the lawyer responds in verse 27 by quoting from two passages, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You may recall that Deuteronomy six, verse five falls immediately after what is known as the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then verse five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then also this lawyer juxtaposes another command next to that command. And that command comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you may remember that Jesus in the gospels, for example, Matthew chapter 22, when, when asked, what is, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded by quoting Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all that you are. And then he says, the second, of course, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting from the same two texts from which this lawyer quotes. Now, shockingly, Shockingly, I want you to notice this. Jesus responds in verse 28 with these words. After after the man, of course, asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I get saved? Jesus directs him to the law. The man responds by summarizing the law and summarizing the law accurately, I might add. Jesus responds in verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now wait just a moment. I suspect that if someone were to come up to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, they approached you as someone who knew something about the path to salvation, the way to inherit eternal life, the way one could be assured in Christ, that one was in a right relationship with God. I suspect you would say something perhaps a bit differently than than what's spoken in this text. And even more shocking than the lawyer's answer is Jesus' affirmation 
of his answer. Do this and you will live. Is Jesus really commending the man for properly identifying the the path to salvation instead of the gospel of Christ? Should we proclaim obedience to God's commandments as the path to a right relationship with God? Just do this and you'll live, friend. Now, on the one hand, the man is right. If such a person existed among mere mortals who could obey God's law perfectly, who indeed loved God with all his being and loved neighbor as himself, he would have eternal life. On the other hand, Jesus is still getting to the heart of the matter and we're not there just yet. So keep following along in the text. The first question of how to inherit eternal life is never really answered until we understand the answer to the second question the lawyer asks Jesus in verse 29, look with me. But he, and then you have a causal participle here, excuse me for the grammar, because he desired to justify himself. We could translate this just as a gerund as the English Standard Version does, desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, And who then is my neighbor? Now, the motivation of the lawyer begins to surface. And now we learn a bit more about the disposition of this man's heart. You see, this man suffers from the same problem that afflicts, may I suggest, every single one of us. He has a high view of self. He's less interested in being exposed and receiving mercy and grace than he is in vindicating himself. He's interested in self-exaltation and self-justification. Now we begin to see the root problem. He doesn't see himself as a man in need of mercy. Don't miss that but as a man who is fine just the way he is. Thank you very much. So Jesus tells the story. See, it's in this context now, Jesus gives this famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Interestingly, Luke introduces the unidentified traveler in the story in a similar way than the way he's introduced the lawyer. I want you to pay close attention to this. We can't do all of this But this is the kind of thing, I don't know about you, but when I get into the word of God, this is the kind of thing that really does put wind in my sails as an expositor of the word of God and really as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This motivates me more so toward a path of obedience to Christ. Look at the text with me. The English Standard Version translators have actually chosen not to translate an indefinite pronoun. By the way, that's fine. We don't always translate indefinite pronouns from Greek into English, but here... I'm interested in pointing this out because I think we miss something in the text when we leave it untranslated. In verse 25, Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke, introduced the lawyer as a certain lawyer, namikos tis, that's that's the indefinite pronoun, tis. Namikos tis. Well, the same indefinite pronoun appears in verse 30, but here with reference to the man, the anthropos, In verse 30, Jesus introduces a certain man. Now, anthropos, tis, you see? And so 
There's an intimation here that maybe, just maybe, there's a relationship between the lawyer and this certain man who actually has traveled down from Jerusalem to Jericho, has been attacked, left, bloody, half dead, and in need of mercy. Maybe, just maybe, there's a correlation between the two men, but one fails to understand and perceive that correlation. Now, notice further in the text, one more bit as we move along here. Notice in verse 25 that the lawyer is described as standing up. You see that? He stood up. This is a common description. This would have been very common, but I I suspect there's more to the description in the text. And here's why. The lawyer stood up in verse 25. Notice verse 30. A certain man, the one who appears to be a kind of parallel to the lawyer, that certain man was going down. Now, hold on to that for just a few moments. So this certain man in the story that Jesus tells was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a dangerous, by the way, 17 mile journey. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. By the way, that description half dead um, has less to do with with a description of the presence of life and more to do with inability to help oneself. A half dead person can't do anything to rescue him or herself. And the story is rapid at this point. And then two passers-by, there is a priest and a Levite and they come upon the man. Both showed unconscionable apathy for the man in dire straits and they pass by on the other side. And so the description really is, is one of walking alongside of the opposite side of the road, attempting to avoid the man. Now there may be any number of reasons these two men might offer for avoiding the man. Perhaps they were, they were in a hurry. Perhaps they were on their way back from Jerusalem and uh, they had a wife and children who were waiting on them. Perhaps they were concerned with becoming ritually unclean because having come into contact with a dead body would render one unclean before the Lord and leaving the priest at least not able to perform his priestly duties. Whatever the excuse they're apathetic. Whatever the excuse, they have other priorities. This man is not their priority. And so they pass by on the other side. Now look with me at verse 33. At this point, the hearers of Jesus would have expected a third party. There's a kind of triadic pattern in the stories that we read in the New Testament and even around this time. You introduce two characters and then finally you give them the third character. And he often is exemplary. And so they're perhaps expecting a good Jew. Okay, the priest failed, the Levite failed, but the good Jew, he won't fail, he'll succeed. But here, Jesus, notice, says in verse 33, a Samaritan. A Samaritan, as he journeyed to where he was, came rather to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, the text goes on to describe what the Samaritan does. And we'll return to that in just a moment. But you need to know that Samaritans were utterly despised, passionately despised by the Jewish people. They weren't merely Gentiles or non-Jews. They were ancestors of the Northern tribes of Israel who compromised 
their Hebrew heritage by marrying pagans. Moreover, there were many instances of their opposition to the Jewish people, not the least of which is in the first century, a man named Josephus, who was, the, who was a first century Jewish historian tells about the Samaritans who desecrated the Jewish temple. Jews despised Samaritans and Samaritans returned the favor. Don't miss that. Now notice in the story, the Samaritan is the only one who actually granted mercy. He dressed the half man's dead, half man, half dead man, excuse me, the half dead man's wounds. He dressed his wounds. He placed him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn where the man was to be nurtured back to full health. And he did all of this at his own expense, paid for in full by the Samaritan. Now Jesus asks the question in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer may be unwilling, may be unwilling to compliment anyone named a Samaritan, says the one who showed him mercy. Now, many of us know that this is a story that teaches us to be a neighbor to others, to show love to others, to offer mercy and compassion to others. But let me suggest to you, church, that we aren't ready for that conclusion just yet. We'll get there, but not just yet. After all, we need to read the story in light of both questions what must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? Now watch this. If I answer the first question accurately, I am positioned to answer the second question accurately. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There is nothing I can do to inherit eternal life. I am incapable of doing anything to secure my eternal inheritance before God. After all, the law of God, the commandments of God expose me as a sinner. They expose my inability. I am laid bare before God's law. The law can expose my sin, but it can never actually empower me against my sin. As one author has put it years ago, run, parry, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. So what's the answer? God must become a neighbor for me to rescue me from this damning condition of sin and death. Run, parry, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far greater news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. What the lawyer failed to see, church, was this. He was the man first in need of God's mercy and in need of God's love. And second, the only sufficient answer for his need was standing right before him in the person of Jesus Christ, who had become the good Samaritan to rescue us in need 
as John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. Let me submit to you that before we are ready to be good Samaritans for others, we need to embrace the one who became the good Samaritan for us in his incarnation. You see, God the Son became truly human while remaining truly God. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. That is to say, he fulfilled the law's demands in our place and for us. Moreover, he suffered for us and in our place, climactically on the cross, bearing divine wrath so that we might not have to. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised in glorious power from the dead. He appeared to many and eventually ascended into heaven where now he sits at the right hand of the Father, praying for us. I would be remiss if I didn't at some point this morning encourage you and even implore you that if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal inheritance before God, don't leave this place without surrendering to Christ. What must you do to be saved? Trust in the one who became the good Samaritan for you. I know Seth would love to visit with you after the service. If that's where you are, don't leave this place without having a conversation with somebody in this church because part of what it means to trust in Jesus Christ is to enter the body of Christ and to be nurtured within the body of Christ and to come alongside of a local church serving them as they indeed also serve you. So friends, now we can return to this broad segment the motivation for mercy. What motivates us as Christians to give mercy to others? And it's really quite simple, isn't it? The gospel of mercy. It's the gospel that motivates us to give mercy to others and then to come full circle. Now, if you are trusting in Christ this morning, if you know Christ Jesus, if you've come to know the God who gives scandalous mercy, through the resurrection, rather through the cross and the resurrection. Now you're ready to hear these words, verse 37. Go and do likewise. So let's conclude our time. We've got about seven minutes left or so. Let's conclude our time identifying quickly four applications in light of the motivation for mercy being the gospel of mercy. Now let's talk about the shape gospel mercy takes as it comes, of course, to us and then passes through us. Let me give you four of them. First, mercy often takes despised, not applauded forms. Mercy often takes despised, not applauded forms. The Samaritan modeled what it was to be the neighbor to others. And it was the Samaritan, of course, who would have been most despised in the story we learn from Isaiah 53, concerning Christ, he was despised. We esteemed him not. And it's to the gospel, you see, that we look in order to shape our mercy efforts, in order to build our outreach endeavors. Our mercy and outreach will at times be met with rejection. Friends, shouldn't surprise us, of course. 
After all, a disciple is not greater than his master, as Jesus taught us. And this is especially true when we operate in the name of and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Second, second application I wanna point out in the text, it grows out of the text, grows legs and walks in our lives. Mercy meets people where they are, not where they should be. Mercy meets people where they are, not where they should be. Verses 33 and 34, the Samaritan is described as coming to where he was. You see that? And then Jesus tells us that the Samaritan went to him. So rather than, remember that, uh, that description concerning the priest and the Levite, rather than passing by on the other side, mercy came to the man, ministered where he was, where he lived, or perhaps better, where he was dying. Having church events on campus is one way to reach out to our community. Praise God for buildings. Praise the Lord for church buildings. But gospel-shaped mercy goes to the neighborhoods. It goes to the places where people need mercy. It goes onto the streets. It goes into the hospitals. It walks into the funeral homes and so forth. We gather on the Lord's day, Christians, so that then we might scatter as envoys of mercy to a world in desperate need of it. Third, third application of mercy here is mercy is not merely something you feel. It is something you do. This is convicting for me, if I may be frank for just a moment. You know, pastors, of course, often preach best what we need to hear most, don't we, brother? Um, Mercy in the gospel is not simply something we feel, it's something we actually end up doing through Christ. Notice, notice in verses 33 and 34 again that when the Samaritan saw him, he had compassion and the story doesn't end there. He went to him and he bound up his wounds and poured oil and wine on him. He even ends up setting the man on his own animal. He goes to the inn, takes the man to the inn. He acts on this compassion that he feels. Don't be content, Christians, feeling compassion for others. Act compassionately. Act compassionately on account of Christ. And then finally, final application. In addition to mercy taking despised, not applauded forms and mercy meeting people where they are, not where they should be and mercy not merely being something you feel, but something you do. Finally, I want you to note that mercy is costly. Mercy is costly. What does mercy demand of the Samaritan? It demands his time, his schedule, it demands that he risk his life. This is a dangerous journey, 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It demands his bandages, his oil, his wine. These are, these are costly items in the ancient world. It demands, as it were, rearranging his financial portfolio. Right? It demands his money, it demands his animal, it demands everything. In fact, notice that he places the man on his animal. What does he do then by implication? He's walking. 
This is terribly inconvenient. Mercy is costly. To give mercy to another demands an interruption in our lives. It will cost us time. It will cost us money. It will cost us comfort, friends. It will cost us sweat and so much more. But we do this in response to the indescribable gift God has given us in Christ Jesus. As Paul wrote, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We can't outgive our Father in heaven. So, what's the point? The point is really this people who have genuinely received the mercy of God in Christ above all others ought to be people who freely grant such mercy to others who are in need. If you're not involved in your church's efforts to reach out with the mercy of Christ, get involved. Get involved, there's no time like the present. Your pastor mentioned even just a moment ago, you have a few ministries right here on campus today. Samaritan's Purse is here, Focus is here, Choices is here. You can stay afterward with a meal and have a conversation. You have no excuse today, right? If you're not involved, get involved in some of these ways. If you are involved, stay involved. What Knox County needs, what this world needs is a church taken by the gospel of mercy, proclaiming that gospel and showing the mercy of the gospel to others.